This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, a unique perspective on the death and life of President George H.W. Bush from the man who ran against him in 1988. Former Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis spoke with his own daughter and my colleague Andrea Dukakis. We asked her to check in with him to reflect on the presidency and a campaign that some consider a turning point in American politics. She reached him at Northeastern University in Boston, where he's a political science professor. Hello? Dad? Hi. Can you hear me? There is a bell. you got a great radio voice. Okay, you ever thought of going on the radio? <laughs> um, anyway. I don't think I've ever interviewed you before. No? No. Fire away, sweetie. How do you view Bush's presidency overall? Um, mixed. I thought he was a pretty mediocre domestic president. His strength was in foreign policy. There's no question about it. And for that, he deserves a lot of credit. Because he and Mikhail Gorbachev did something that a lot of people thought was impossible. They ended the Cold War. And especially for those of us who lived through decades of conflict between the United States and Russia, communism and capitalism, that was a remarkable achievement. He deserves a lot of credit for it. And I hope people are going to remember this right now as we find ourselves sliding into another stupid Cold War, which is totally unnecessary, which will cost us trillions. And uh, at a time when I think uh, this world of ours has the capacity to sit down together, reason together, and create a world in which war is ruled out as a means for settling disputes between and among people and countries. And um, we're better than this. Let's talk about the Willie Horton ad, because in many ways yeah. that's become, you know, what people remember about right. the ADA about the campaign. campaign. Yeah. Um, right. It was an effort to paint you as soft on crime. It talks about a furlough program that allowed inmates out of prison for a weekend furlough in Massachusetts. Right. Willie Horton was the guy who got out on furlough. You were governor. Uh, he ended up raping a woman. Right. He was black, and his mugshot was pictured on the ad. Many called the ad racist. I'm going to just play a bit first and then ask you about it. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. What do you think about when you hear that ad? Well, first, that I did a very bad job of dealing with it in terms of the campaign itself. Uh, the fact of the matter was that this was a fellow program that had been started by a Republican governor in Massachusetts. And Ronald Reagan, when he was governor of California, had a furlough program. In fact, two of his furloughees went out and murdered people, and he defended the program. Not only that, but the Reagan-Bush administration had the most liberal furlough program in America. They weren't furloughing people for 72 hours. They were furloughing them for 45 days, and one of their furloughees went out and murdered a young pregnant mother in the Southwest. Um, so why did you that. fight back? I never said that because I decided I was not going to respond to the Bush attack campaign because I wanted to run a positive campaign. We had had a lot of polarization during the Reagan administration. And there's this kind of notion that it was different then. It was a highly polarized period. 
And I thought it was time for that the country was ready for something more positive, and I, I really believe that. Some pundits see the campaign as the start of this era of negative campaigning on presidential campaigns. Do you see it that way? No, the era of negative attacks in presidential campaigns began almost from the beginning of the republic. Didn't happen during the first Washington term, but a very partisan press, I mean, the press didn't even make a pretense of of being nonpartisan, uh, got very tough the second term around, and, and President Washington, as he was leaving office, expressed, you know, his disgust for the process and, and this kind of thing. And by the time we got to the Jefferson Adams feud, mm-hmm. it was fully blown. Now, was it different? Yeah, it wasn't electronic, but it was very, very tough. So anybody who thinks that there was an era of, of civility back then and it's changed does not know anything about American history. Those were very, very tough campaigns. Okay. Okay, sweetie. Love you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with her father, Michael, who ran against George H.W. Bush in 1988. The late President Bush will be laid to rest tomorrow in Texas. The question of how the U.S. should handle asylum seekers is front and center with the migrant caravan at the southern border. Already, asylum claims can take years, and federal officials want to speed things up. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry has looked into a new policy getting a test run in Denver's immigration court. She explained how it works to CPR's Megan Verlee. So in the past, you would have probably gotten three or four or even five years to go through your asylum claim. You'd get maybe a year to find a lawyer and another year to fill out certain paperwork. There's all these different proceedings. Now DOJ is saying they want all of this to happen within 365 days, everything to be wrapped up. So let's say you came from Guatemala, you're living in Denver. Your first court hearing is two or three months after you've arrived. That's the first time you're hearing anything. You're hearing what asylum even is, how to apply for it, and you're getting these orders and these dates from the Department of Justice. And then, you know, you're already three months into your 365 days. That's seven or eight months now they have to build this very, very complicated asylum claim. I guess I don't even know what goes into making an asylum claim. So... Um, I didn't either, but lawyers tell me it's extremely involved. They have to talk about country conditions. They talk to neighbors and family members back in the country they're from. They build this case of credible fear. And it can be police records. Things need to be notarized and requested. So it can take a lawyer up to 100 hours of work for one asylum claim. It sounds like now all the deadlines to do that work are vastly shortened under this pilot program. And, and, you know, most people are not going to have the eight to $10,000 right when they get here to pay a lawyer to do this. Some lawyers are setting up monthly payment plans and that sort of thing. But, you know, in the old days, having three or four years was a lot more feasible to do this kind of thing um, than 365 days. Okay, so the immigration lawyers say not nearly enough time. What does the Justice Department say about this? So the Justice Department says 365 days should be enough time to build this case and to hear it out. Now, I think the proof is going to be in about eight or nine months when all these people who've had their first court appearance in October under this new pilot program are going to have their final asylum hearing. Now, those 
those hearings usually are like there's one or two people a day that a judge will hear from. They're long. They're two or three hours. Lawyers have told me some of those are now 40, 50, 60 people a day are scheduled for those final hearings, which is just vastly bigger than what they're doing now. So I don't know how that's going to work. And I don't even know if judges are going to punt cases if, you know, I don't know. Hearings that before might have taken four hours, it sounds like are scheduled for 10, 15 minutes? Yeah. I just don't know how that's going to work because asylum cases, as I said, are extremely complicated. So if the Department of Justice is saying this is going to be fair, lawyers are saying, how can it be fair if they're going to get 10 or 15 minutes and not three or four hours? I talked to one lawyer who represented somebody and it took all day and they didn't even finish in a single day. And so that hearing was pushed to two years later. So this person is in the middle of their asylum case and they have a two-year wait between one hearing and the other. So that's kind of how crazy and backlogged everything is. I understand you actually went to see the beginning of this pilot program right. in action in October when the first families that will be enrolled in it uh, had their first day in court. What was that scene like? It was crowded. Um, it was kind of standing room only in this courtroom, and then they had an overflow room. There were a lot of children there. They pushed in a cart with coloring books so the kids would kind of stay quiet. There were some volunteer lawyers interpreting. Some of the lawyers were trying to give out lists of lawyers who were taking some of these pro bono cases. But it was quite chaotic. And I think if you're one of 60 or 70 people getting your rights and paperwork thrown at you, it's not going to be as clear as if, you know, you had individual attention even for 15 or 20 minutes. Why do you think the Justice Department is taking this step of trying to get families through the system faster? Well, they do have a huge backlog. The number of people seeking asylum has gone up from about 5,100 people a year back in the aughts, like 2007, 2008, to 91,000 people a year in 2016. So clearly there is a huge number of people, mostly coming up from Central America, with claims. And I think the federal government would say, we need to do something to get these people's cases through the system. But lawyers also say they feel like this is an act of deterrence, that they're trying to deter people who are coming up now from coming up at all. And if they are moving a family through in a year and that family returns back to the village they came from, maybe someone else in the village won't think it's a great idea to come up to the United States. Now, lawyers will say that's ridiculous, that that's not how people make decisions to leave their countries. But that could be a reason that DOJ is doing this. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry speaking with editor Megan Verlee about an effort to speed up family asylum cases. The Department of Justice is using Denver's immigration courts to test it. The A-Line to Denver International Airport had a rough start in 2016. Trains broke down more than once that year, earning it an unreliable reputation. Is the A-Line working today? RTDs trained to the plane. Wait for it. Wait for it. No. Kyle Clark there from Nine News. These days, the A-Line is doing much better overall. It carries some 600,000 riders a month. Its on-time rate is around 97%. Why, then, is the Federal Railroad Administration threatening to shut it down? CPR's Nathaniel Miner covers RTD. Hi there. Hey, Ryan. Why are the feds threatening to shut down an A-line that in many ways is running smoothly? So stop me if you've heard this before, but it's an issue with the crossing gates. Uh, Regulators say they sometimes come down too early and stay down too long, uh, at least longer than they were designed to. And that's been happening since this line opened two and a half years ago. Back then, RTD said it would be fixed in a couple months. And now here we are in December 2018. Why did this federal administration allow the line to open if there were issues with these crossing gates in the first place? Well, we know that RTD really, really wanted to open it on time. They had been advertising it all over town. 
But they also knew that the gates weren't working properly. So a few weeks before opening day, RTD petitioned petitioned the federal government for an emergency waiver. And they got it. But the FRA required flaggers to be stationed at each and every grade crossing. These are the men and women holding flags and in between, like, sitting in those lawn chairs, right, right, by the crossings. Of course, when we talk about crossings, fundamentally, we're talking about the safety of passing cars and uh, the uh, avoidance of collisions. This is why people who live in North Denver still hear uh, this every 10 or 15 minutes. Exactly. And that that train horn, those are driving people crazy. But until these issues are resolved, the FRA is requiring them every time a train approaches a crossing gate. Why don't we get to some listener questions here, Nathaniel? This is Rob Bender. He commutes on the A-line. Now it's been two years. Like, I just... Is it not as simple as computer programming or like what's going on? I guess it's my question. I gather it's not as straightforward as rewriting some code. It is not. Okay. Uh, fundamentally, there's a disagreement over whether the crossing gates need to be fixed at all. Oh, there's not even agreement that this is a problem. Exactly. Okay. So the feds say the real problem is they're not meeting the standard laid out in the latest waiver to keep it running. The contractor that built and operates the line, they totally disagree. They say the crossing gates are working fine and that the FRA is holding them to an unreasonable standard. But really, it's the FRA that's the judge and jury here, so it's their opinion that really matters. Okay, another question from the audience. This is Mark Evans of Denver. Who is really to blame here? I mean, part of me is like, just fire everybody. (laughs) Get get somebody in there. This is the epitome of a solved problem. He wants to hear, you're fired. You're fired. Okay. <laughs> so let's take that last part. That, yes, train crossings have been around for a long, long time. But there's some new wrinkles here with this particular line. And it goes back to this uh, commuter train accident in California 10 years ago. Oh. 25 people died. And after that, Congress passed a law raising standards for how commuter and freight rail operate. New standards. And that new standard is called positive train control. It's supposed to help prevent accidents by connecting the entire system. So there's a command center, there's wayside buildings, there's crossings and trains. All of those different pieces, uh, they're all connected, communicating, talking to each other. Think about it as going from like a rotary telephone to a smartphone. Uh, For young listeners, when you watch It's a Wonderful Life this Christmas, you'll see a rotary phone if you've never been exposed to such a thing. Yes, exactly. There's one on Mr. Potter's death. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so uh, so positive train control. Uh, For crossings in particular, um, the way that those worked for a long time is that a train would hit a certain section of track before the crossing. And that section would uh, send a message either mechanically or electronically to the crossing saying, hey, train's coming. Gates down come gates. down, yeah, yep, and then the train comes through. This new system, everything's connected with GPS and Wi-Fi, um, so all of those different systems need to work for the cra- for the um, the crossings to work. I mean, presumably, there's an upside to that complexity. Yeah, it's supposed to be safer. So, for instance, if a if an operator's going too fast, uh, the command center knows that because they're connected, and they can remotely slow down the train. Well. Um, So railroads have been trying to implement different types of systems over the last decade that would meet this new standard. Again, to avoid the kind of thing that happened in California, which was so deadly. And uh, RTD's A-Line is is one of these systems. Ding, ding, ding. Yep. The (laughs) A-Line. The A-Line is the first commuter rail line in the country to build in a smart signaling system. Everyone else is retrofitting. So RTD's system is kind of an unfortunate pioneer. An unfortunate pioneer. That's the book you'll write about this someday. (laughs) 
let's get back to Mark's first question. Who is to blame here? Where does responsibility lie? I, I, I don't know. Uh, the FRA and the RTD both say the contractor needs to fix this. The contractor says, nope, it's working fine. So there's lawsuits flying around right now, and maybe one day we'll get a judge's opinion. Um, but like I said earlier, the FRA is the regulator. It's their opinion that really matters. Okay, and they are the ones threatening potentially to shut down the A-line. Is that just posturing, would you say? It could be. Um, I don't know that anyone really wants to see this train shut down. It's a big success by many measures. Yeah. Um, but the FRA won't talk beyond this letter that they sent a couple of weeks ago. Um, the other parties here, RTD, their contractor, they wouldn't talk either. Um, it's clear, though, we do know that they're taking this very seriously. They're going to submit a plan next week um, that they hope will sort of stave off any closures. Now, you've mentioned this contractor, Denver Transit Partners. Why are they involved? Why does an RTD just run the train themselves? Big reason is money. So let's go back in time here, about 15 years. In 2004, voters raised taxes on themselves so RTD could build out light rail, commuter rail, and some bus lines. That plan was called Fast Tracks. And uh, a couple years later, the plan hit a few big snags. Including a recession. (laughs) That's, yes. Yeah. Uh, So sales tax revenue went off a cliff. Construction costs went way up. And then there was another train accident in California that convinced freight railroads, which own a lot of -of right-of-way, not to let RTD use their tracks. So something else had to be built. That's probably expensive. Right, exactly. So around this time, say a decade ago, it wasn't really clear if the airport train was ever going to be built. But then RTD latched onto the idea of getting a private contractor in to build and operate the line. That and saved them a lot of money. Yeah, RTD has had trains for decades, but the A-line is different. It is, yes. The A-line, the B-line to Westminster, the G-line to Arvada and Wheat Ridge, whenever that opens, those are all commuter rail lines. They're much heavier than the white light rail trains that we see around town, and they have to meet a different standard, different set of rules. Why not just do light rail? Wouldn't that have made all of this easier? Uh, They looked at that, but commuter rail is cheaper per mile, and some of these lines are 20, 30 miles long, so uh, it it just made more sense to do commuter rail. And the other piece of this is that you can't run light rail lines next to freight rail um, because of one of these uh, collisions out in California. Interesting how much California is influencing the (laughs) sort of snafus here. Can you trust RTD to get you to the airport on time? Well, if you look at the numbers, yes, you can. Uh, it's it's on time 97% of the time. I think anyone that drives I-70 just probably does not make it where they want to go 97% of the time on time. Um, of course, if it does go wrong, though, the stakes are pretty high here, right? If the train breaks down, you could be out on a bridge somewhere, um, and, and that could get you in trouble. Very briefly, you mentioned the G-Line to Arvada and Wheat Ridge. That was supposed to open two years ago. What's the latest? So the FRA last month shot down RTD's request to open it, and they say tests need to go better before that can open. Wait and see, essentially. CPR's Nathaniel Miner on the train to the plane and other issues dogging RTD. A correction now in our feedback segment, Loud and Clear. In a story about Denver's streets this week, we mistakenly referred to the creator of the Barnes Dance Intersections, Henry Barnes, as a city planner, Barnes intersections where those street crossings were all traffic stopped for a short period of time to allow pedestrians to scramble across the road any way they wished. Barnes was not a city planner, but a traffic engineer, as pointed out to us by Ruthie Rollins of Fort Collins, who is herself a traffic engineer. Don't cross the street in the middle, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle of the block. Don't cross the street in the middle, 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 in the middle of the block. 
When we come back, baby, it's cold outside, gets the cold shoulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out The Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What do you think of this song, which has been covered by many of the greats? I really can't stay. But baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. But baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been, been hoping that you drop so in. Nice. I'll hold your hands, they're just like My ice. Mother will start to Beautiful, worry. what's your Listen to that fireplace roar. So really, i better scurry. Beautiful, please don't hurry. Well, maybe just a Why don't you put some records on? Oh, the neighbors might think. But baby, it's bad out there. Say, what's in this drink? No caps to be hot out there. Oh, I wish I knew. Each year around this time, Baby It's Cold Outside seems to take a lot of heat. But this year especially, in light of Me Too and the Cosby conviction, that line, what's in this drink, seems especially fraught. Some radio stations have stopped playing the tune. One station in Denver went back and forth on this. Oh, but it's cold outside. We wanted some perspective on songs that may not stand the test of time. Brett Saunders joins us. He's longtime morning host at KBCO Radio and jazz columnist for the Denver Post. Hi again, Brett. Terrific to see you, Ryan. Thanks for having me back. The song, I think, was written in 1944. Right. What can you tell us about it? Sure. It was written by Frank Lesser, who wrote Guys and Dolls. He wrote the music for Guys and Dolls. Oh, yes. He was a hugely respected composer on Broadway. He actually wrote the song for a house party to be sung with his wife. And it took off from there. It ended up in a movie called Neptune's Daughter, and it was sung by, listen to this, Esther Williams and Ricardo Montalban, who went on to be known for his affection for fine Corinthian leather. Uh, I can't remember which car it was. The Cordova. Cordova. He he did car commercials, and he was on Fantasy Island, too. And then Esther Williams was like the swimming Right, right. Magnificent. Magnificent talent. So they both performed the song in this film, Neptune's Daughter, and it went on to win the Academy Award for Best Song. And no one remembers that movie. It's interesting. Everyone remembers the song. I didn't know until Uh we talked yesterday, and I looked it up. What do you think of this song, Baby It's Cold Outside? I think it's uh, relatively... In my opinion, a relatively trivial song. It's it's a bit of light entertainment. I mean, I think I can survive the holiday season without hearing it. You know, I have levels of tolerance for different songs. I think the little <laughs> drummer boy is the most monotonous holiday song. I'm not talking about the sentiment. I'm actually talking about the actual monotony of of the record. Uh-huh. Maybe it's cold outside for me is kind of in the lower lower echelon of of holiday classics. You were shrewd to point out to me before we went 
on the air that it's not even a Christmas song, really. It's not even a holiday song. It's just a cold weather it's, song. It's a cold song. It could be a February song. It, it could absolutely be in Colorado, eight or nine months out of the year, this song would apply, <laughs> especially in the high country. A Denver radio station that plays only holiday music this sure. time of year announced that it had pulled this song, citing listener concerns, and then it threw a poll up asking if it had made the right decision. 15,000 people replied, and 95% of them disagreed with the decision. That is, they wanted Baby It's Cold Outside. Does that surprise you? It doesn't, because the song, I mentioned tradition, people don't like being told that something's being removed from whatever their tradition is, and if it's a holiday tradition or something else. They might not even love that song, but they know that that song has been there. It's been a part of their lives. I know of a version that I think is particularly nice from Willie Nelson and Nora Jones, and that, that thing that you just played with Dolly Parton sounded pretty good, and Dean Martin. I mean, since the 1940s, it's been part of the American fabric. So I can see where people might be excited to hear it or look forward to hear it. Uh, But on the other hand, if there are people who are offended by it, wouldn't you agree that we need to listen to those people? And you mentioned something about uh, something in my drink and uh, everything surrounding Bill Cosby. I can see where maybe new generations of people or people who have been listening to it forever might see it as a song about coercion or or pressure, right? For sure. That's the backdrop. Right. Now, the the station I mentioned, Cozy, announced that they would put it back in rotation after this sort of outpouring of support. I'll say that a radio station in Cleveland actually pulled it first. Across Canada, apparently, the the CBC joins two other broadcasters in that country removing Baby It's Cold Outside. And a station in San Francisco just took it off the air as well. And they're they're putting up a poll similar to the one that was instituted by Cozy this past week. Okay, I took Cozy's poll, and I just want to share some skepticism. The poll was a great way, it turns out, for Cozy to collect information from its listeners because I was asked (laughs) for my name, phone number, zip code, gender, email address. What are you talking about? (laughs) I didn't. I didn't have to provide that. (laughs) Cozy's program director didn't respond to our request for comment. You're on the commercial side of things, Brett Saunders. Was this a brilliant marketing trick? That's an excellent question. And it's a question I would answer with a little bit of hesitation because I'm not with that particular organization. I will say that Jim Lawson, who's the program director of Cozy, is a guy I know and a guy I respect a great deal. Is it a marketing trick? Well, radio is famous for various schemes and marketing tricks over the decades. Going back to WKRP and the uh, attempts, with the, remember the turkeys? The turkeys couldn't fly when they dropped the turkeys out of the helicopter? <laughs> that Thanksgiving double, I mean, that was fictional, of course, but I believe it was based on real events. You and wouldn't be surprised in any case. I, no, I, I would not be surprised, but I also would not speak for those people. Now, more recently... <laughs> Artists have tried to modernize Baby It's Cold Outside. I think of Colorado's own Nathaniel Rateliff, who did a duet with Julie Davis that reversed the roles. I simply must go. Baby, it's cold outside. The answer is no. Baby, it's cold outside. The welcome has been. I'm lucky that you so nice and warm. This is actually a track our colleagues at CPR's Open Air play. They play other versions, too. They're great, by the way. Thank you. I love open air. The music director, Jesse Witten, says, We generally don't take the role of censor when presenting music. The role we play is to air the best music we can without judgment. But uh, as the conversation evolves, Jesse adds, they're taking all sides into consideration. 
Uh, To prove that this controversy is not new this year, in 2014, a blogger named Dara Lane produced a video called Baby, It's Consent Inside. (laughs) I really can't stay. It's totally fine. I'll call you a cab. I already ordered an Uber. Marcus is on his way. All right. Well, text me when you get home safe. Will do. A different outcome. (laughs) Brett, you point to another song that doesn't hold up well. It's not a winter song, proving that this is actually a year-round question. Before we hear Jack Jones' Wives and Lovers (laughs) from 1963, tell us why it stands out. Even as a kid, I thought that the instructions that the narrator of the song was issuing to the female audience were a little bit smarmy, a, a little bit dominant, uh, making suggestions that it's time to get ready for love and that you <laughs> had better be on your uh, your game of femininity if you were to uh, continue to thrive in this particular relationship. It's kind of a sleazy, <laughs> it's a pretty, not kind of, it's a pretty sleazy record. And you sense this even as a child. I, I remember thinking to myself, this probably isn't a very, I mean, as a kid, this isn't really a nice thing, even though it's presented as like, it's bouncy and it's, I think it's a waltz, isn't it? Let's listen. Yeah. Hey, little girl, comb your hair. Fix your makeup Soon he will open the door Don't think because There's a ring on your finger You needn't try anymore Oof. We have just a few seconds. Has KBCO ever told you there's a song you can't play? No. I, I like what Jesse Witten said, and that is... We try to play the best music for our listeners. It's that simple. Brett Saunders, morning host on KBCO. He also writes a jazz column for the Denver Post, and we talked about the thorniness of Baby It's Cold Outside. Happy holidays. Happy everything, Ryan. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks, Brett. Now an update on one of my favorite guests, Gitanjali Rao. She's the girl from Lone Tree who won a national science competition for inventing an easier way to test for lead in water. She's now 12 and in the eighth grade, and she has been honored again. Forbes has named her to its 30 under 30 list in the science category. She's the youngest winner. I first spoke with Gitanjali last year when she was named America's top young scientist by 3M. Gitanjali, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What inspired you to work with lead in water? So I've been following the Flint water crisis for about two years now. Hmm. And I thought about creating a device when I saw my parents testing for lead in our water using the test strips. And I realized that it wasn't a reliable process. And I wanted to do something to change this, not only for my parents, but for the residents of Flint and places like Flint around the world. This means you started paying attention to the Flint crisis when you were about nine, I gather. Yes. Wow. Okay. And right now, if you want to test your water, what you go, you buy these strips and what doesn't quite work about them, do you think? Um, So there are two main ways to test for lead in our water or just water quality in general. One is the test strips and the other one is sending our water off to the EPA. The test strips on one hand are easy to use and fast, but they're not accurate. And sending our water off to the EPA is accurate, but it's expensive 
Uh, well, it requires expensive equipment and is time-consuming. And so your invention is called? Tethys. Tethys, after the Greek goddess of fresh water, is that right? Yes. And you've got one here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a plastic box, and this connects to your smartphone? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And it connects to your smartphone to display the results of safe water status, slightly contaminated, or critical. So you just attach a disposable cartridge to the device itself and dip the cartridge in the water you wish to test. Once you do that, you pull out your smartphone and connect over Bluetooth and check your status. You know what impresses me, Katanjali, is that you can speak to all kinds of audiences. So I feel like you are explaining very clearly here in everyday terms, how this works. But you had to submit this idea in a video. And, you know, that was to a different audience. That's to the folks at the contest. I have to just play a bit of your video here. My solution proposes using nanotube-based sensors that detect the presence of lead in its compounds. Due to the sensitivity and conductivity of carbon nanotube structures, this sensor can detect lead faster than any other current techniques. Why are you talking so fast? Well, I had to smush a lot of information into one to two minutes. (laughs) And you had to get in a lot of science. You had to demonstrate to the judges that you knew what you were talking about. (laughs) Yes, Uh I did. So from that video, you were selected as a finalist and assigned a mentor, Dr. Kathleen Schaefer, who works at 3M, uh, the company that sponsors this National Young Scientist Contest. What sorts of things did she help you with? My mentor helped me originally with introducing me to nanotube simulation, and she also helped me um, uh, refine my experimentation plans and make sure I had all the safety and disposal requirements into consideration as well, since those are also important aspects. Um, And so not to be exposed to it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You put the tethers together, and you needed the types of tools that scientists have, like a lab and even a 3D printer So you went to your teachers. What did they think? How did they help? I got a lot of help from my school, STEM school, Highlands Ranch. First of all, they helped me 3D print the outer um, cover of my device and my cartridge. One of my other computer science teachers helped me um, develop my user interface further, making it more user-friendly, of course. That's the app, in other words, the user interface of the app, so that it makes sense to people. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and... One of the high school chemistry teachers allowed me to use her chemistry lab in order to perform my tests. And uh, the end result is that you won $25,000. Yes. What are you going to do with that money? Um, with most of the money, I plan to continue evolving my device. With the rest of the money, I plan to give back to the organizations I volunteer for, such as Children's Kindness Network. And I would also like to um, put the rest into my college funds. Uh, into college. <laughs> You're so sensible. What do you think you'll study? I want to go to MIT to study um, genetics and epidemiology since they allow me to look at different approaches to solve real-world problems out there today. Sounds like you've prepared that. Someone (laughs) has asked you that before. I can just tell. Gitanjali, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Gitanjali Rao. Since our interview last year, she tells us she's made the testing device smaller and easier to use. She's also working with Denver Water in their water quality research lab to further improve the test's accuracy. Our next guest has photographed a long, long list of rock stars. Tom Petty, B.B. King, the Allman Brothers, Iggy Pop, Willie Nelson. It just goes on and on. Lisa Siciliano is one of the last remaining rock and roll art 
photographers. For years, she was the house photographer at Red Rocks and the Boulder Theatre. This Thursday is her 13th annual Rocking in a Winter Wonderland art show in Boulder. And Lisa, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. To me, your photos of the gender-bending shock rock hero Marilyn Manson really stand out. Thank you. In one photo, he's wearing this spiked feathered (laughs) helmet contraption with his mouth revealing big white teeth. Then there's one in this S&M bodice thing Mm -hmm. with ripped (laughs) pantyhose. How does Marilyn Manson compare to the many other artists you shoot? He's pretty up there as awesome to shoot because, you know, he does have to work for me. He really likes having his photo taken as well. He's one of the few people that lets you shoot the entire show sometimes, and that doesn't happen very often. Oh, is it usually that you get a window? You do. You get one to three songs generally. There have been a couple times where I've had 60 seconds to shoot. It's kind of crazy. Who puts the 60-second rule Well, there you? was um, <laughs> one was uh, Erica Badu and one was Stevie Wonder. So, yeah, and Stevie was really rough because we weren't even allowed to take our first shot until he played his first note. So we couldn't even take photos of him entering the stage. So that was really rough. When they choose the minute window, what is it you think they're trying to manage? That's what I would really like to know. (laughs) That's a really good question because it's really strange. A lot of it is management itself doing that because the same band won't have the same rules every single time. Ah, if management changes. Yes. So sometimes, you know, like Marilyn Manston, for instance, he let us shoot the whole show twice. And then other times he let us shoot one song. So I don't know if it's how they're feeling. Maybe they're feeling super awesome in how they look or how the show's going. Or maybe it's a bad hair day. Exactly. It could be anything. So I don't try to guess it. A lot of times we don't know until we get there. It's helpful to understand that you are not backstage necessarily with the artists, right? Yes, unless it's a a band that hires me, which happens. I just did a three-run shoot with the Little Smokies, and I was able to go anywhere and shoot the whole show, and I was able to go backstage and on stage. So unless you're being hired by the band, you basically are told where you can stand. Sometimes mm. it's behind the artist. Sometimes it's far away where you can't even see. Sometimes it's right in front. That's ideal when it's right in front and you can move about. So Do you ever get their sweat on you? <laughs> I got spit on before, yeah. <laughs> not, not on purpose. No, not on purpose. Just like the... No. Uh, Femi Cootie had his saxophone and he took the reed out and just... All the spit got, yeah, that was not so fun. (laughs) (laughs) It occurs to me that there are quite a few moments in performance, especially if it's an intense performance, Mm -hmm. where, I I don't really want to put a value judgment on it, but where people are kind of ugly. They're straining, right? Yeah. Um, They're straining to hit a note or they're contorted. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you aim to preserve or... Is that something that you hope to move past and catch something pretty? It depends on the artist. I I feel like every artist is different. Um, A lot of times I try to capture the in-between moments, the quiet moments. So right after that strain, they might stop and look to the side and close their eyes and 
That's more interesting to me sometimes. I think there's an Alicia Keys photo that you took. There that's is, like yeah, that. yeah, where she's just kind of looking off to the side. And I do a lot of quiet moments because that's something that you don't really see very often. And it's kind of that in between, like the silent spaces that I like a lot. Some people live for the fortune. Some people live just for the fame. Some people live for the power, yeah. Some people live just to play the game. How did you start in this? Very randomly. It, it was not planned. I was in my 30s already. I was bored. I was working at the Fox Theater as a cocktail waitress. I got out of school, college early, never used my degree. I was actually supposed to be doing what you're doing. Radio. <laughs> yes. And the Fox is in Boulder, by the, the way. Fox Theater is in hill. Boulder. So I was cocktail waitressing there for a long time. And I just brought my, I bought a camera from a neighbor that happened to be selling one. Just Brought it to shows with me because back then there weren't a lot of rules. It was very different back then. So I just brought it with me. There was no photo passes. Now to go into the Fox where I've been shooting for 20 years, I need a photo pass. But back then you didn't. So I would have my camera up on the bar during the encore. I'd grab it and go shoot some photos. And sure enough, I did this for a couple months. And then my husband's mom was working at a magazine, a music magazine in New Jersey. And Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young were coming to Pepsi Center. I said, oh, that'd be so cool to shoot that. I said, why don't you see if your mom can get me a photo pass? Sure enough, she did, which was kind of a fluke. And I went in and shot that show. My second show was Metallica. <gasps> and I ended up getting a killer shot of James Hetfield, like killer I sent it on a whim to the guy from Red Rocks. The guy from Red Rocks called me down for an interview, and I got the job. So it... the, the job was open of Red Rocks official photographer? Yeah, there was a few of us there. So there was like a team back in the day. And yeah, he went and got a contract. And I was like, ooh, I better learn what I'm doing really quick. <laughs> favorite artist to photograph? We've talked about Marilyn Manson. Iggy Pop Mads. Iggy is Pop. another huge favorite. I mean, he just... He just lets it go on stage. Slash is another person that I love to shoot. The guitarist. The guitarist, yeah. There's been quite a few. I don't like shooting jam bands because it doesn't really go with my style. What I like is when I can focus in on one person and kind of isolate them in a portrait. So I love blues singers, Etta James, B.B. King, Willie Nelson. But jam bands, which are incredibly popular, of course, in Colorado between uh, The Dead, String Cheese Incident, Mm -hmm. Fish. Mm -hmm. There's just too much going on on stage. Or maybe too little. (laughs) Both. Okay. (laughs) It doesn't lend itself to my style. Having done it for as long as I have, I have a specific style, and I know kind of which which bands work for me and which bands don't. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with longtime rock and roll art photographer Lisa Siciliano. She was the house photographer at Red Rocks for a decade, and her upcoming annual rock art show is this week in Boulder. You say that you have a style. How would you describe your style? Black and white for sure. And film always, right? It's all film, yeah. It's all 100% black and white film. And it's very minimalistic. Why film? Still today, it's so retro. I feel like it has an aesthetic that you can't 
copy with anything else. Like, it's just how some people like to record music on analog as opposed to digital. It just has a quality with shadows, especially, that I really, really love. It just really brings the deep shadows in people's faces and hands out. And I also like how it slows me down because I really need to think about what I'm doing when I'm shooting film. So I'm not going to go out there and just stick the camera above my head and just start firing away. I'm actually really looking for a moment. You're being mindful of Very how mindful. much film exactly. you're using because exactly. that's expensive. It's also painstaking because you have to take the film out and replace exactly. it. Exactly. That's the only bummer about film. There are some drawbacks. And sure enough, someone will come do a solo right in front of me right when my film runs out. And I'm like, oh. and it's always the time too. I mean, I've changed millions of rolls of film. And it's always that time if, you know, Slash is right in front of you that you're fumbling with the film and can't get it across. <laughs> but what, I still wouldn't trade it. What is the the f- picture or artist that got away? Oh, well, <laughs> Lemmy from Motorhead, because I've had photo passes to shoot him three times and he was just too ill to come. So I missed it three times. And that's real bummer. I mean, David Bowie's another one, but I never got that close to David Bowie. Hmm. But Lemmy, I actually had the pass in my pocket and he wasn't able to make it. And I feel like both of those artists would really lend themselves to what I do. I feel like in pop music especially, there's real emphasis placed on how a singer or musician looks. Mm-hmm. I guess I just want you to reflect on that a little bit. Like the the talent, the musical talent versus the the looks. Yeah, I haven't had the chance to shoot a lot of pop artists. I did want to shoot Adele because I felt like, especially with black and white, it would just be really gorgeous with her facial aesthetics. And I didn't, she didn't let anyone shoot her, unfortunately. Oh, really? But yeah, it was kind of a bummer because she's so gorgeous. This so, was at Red Rocks? It was at Pepsi Center. At Pepsi actually, Center. Actually. Red Rocks is such a small venue for uh, something yeah, like right? Adele. Now. I know, I know. So I think for me... It doesn't matter. Like, Lemmy is not a good-looking guy. I don't know if you've ever seen him, but he's rough, and he's got, you know, wrinkles and a big mole. But to me, that's just amazing looking. I don't need perfect. Do you feel like you get into a rhythm with the music? Absolutely, yeah. And there's certain people that I just have not been able to find that rhythm with. Queens of the Stone Age is a band that I've shot three times now, and I just, I love their music, but there's something about the way they move that I kind of can't really find it. A lot of times I do feel like I'm part of the band, you know? It's like I just can feel the music, even though I don't play music. I live with two musicians. My husband and my daughter are both musicians, and I've been around music forever. So I feel like I could kind of feel it and feel like when something's going to happen, when it's going to flow, when it's going to get quiet, when it's going to get loud. That you can anticipate that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So who's an example of a band, you know, whose music you really connect with as a photographer? Yeah, I think Guns N' Roses and Slash is definitely one of them. Okay. You know, you can really feel the ups and downs of that music. The White Stripes were another one. And uh, blues music. I like blues music a lot. And Buddy Guy is another one that's just... Buddy Guy, the guitarist. Yeah, amazing. Gosh, I, I just saw him at the Paramount. Oh, did you love what it? What a talent. Yeah, I know. And he's like 80-something. Oh. Five long years for one woman. And she had to know. 
Okay, uh, leave us with this great story. Okay. You're putting on your 13th annual yeah. rock art show in Boulder, selling prints of your concert photos. And this show has kind of humble beginnings. <laughs> Very humble. Yes, when it started 13 years ago, we were extremely poor at the time. And I was just, you know, my career was in its infancy. And and my daughter was three years old, and we needed to buy Christmas gifts. And a friend of mine said, you know what? Why don't you come over with your darkroom seconds? So all the stuff in my darkroom that I was just printing for fun that was just laying around in my darkroom, why don't you bring those over? We'll hang a few. We'll invite people over, and we'll sell the darkroom prints. And we did that. I made like 800 bucks. It was a big success. Christmas and gifts for daughter covered? Was, Christmas gifts for daughter were covered. It was amazing. And other people got to get gifts too because it's really nice to give someone something that's very personal to them. Like, oh, we went to this show together at Red Rocks and it was an amazing experience. And here's a picture from that show. And it's only grown since then. It has, yeah. Well, I have to say, it, it was a gift just to see your photograph of Florence Welch, of Florence and the Machine, she is in this long, flowy, white gown of some kind or dress, and you have caught her as the material is almost enrobing her mid-spin on stage. Yeah, it's she's ghostly. She's, she's one of those ones, too, that just really lends herself to photographs. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Run fast for your mother, fast for your Lisa Siciliano is a rock and roll art photographer. She was the house photographer at Red Rocks for 10 years. Her 13th annual rock art show called Rocking in a Winter Wonderland is this Thursday in Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.